This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Dialogue Board of Directors. Today, we're especially pleased to have as our guest, Russell Stevenson, who is the author of For the Cause of Righteousness, A Global History of Blacks and Mormonism, 1830-2014. to This book won the 2014 Mormon History Association Best Book Award. A Ph.D. candidate in African history at Michigan State University, Russell recently spent time in Africa doing oral history research on Mormonism within the Igbo-speaking community of southeastern Nigeria. The title of his presentation is We Aren't Africa, Nigeria and the Africanization of Mormon Identity. Be sure to stick around for the question and answer session and hear some comments by Amos Olaleri, a Nigerian convert who is currently serving as bishop of an LDS ward in Corona, California. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope you'll consider visiting us online at dialoguejournal.com and subscribing to the print or electronic version of Dialogue. At this time of giving, we would also appreciate any tax-deductible donations you might make to Dialogue Foundation to help keep the journal financially viable. The next voice you'll hear will be my introduction of Russell Stevenson at a gathering of the Miller-Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California. Well, our speaker tonight is Russell Stevenson, who's pursuing a Ph.D. in African History at Michigan State University. The title of his presentation is We Aren't Africa, Nigeria and the Africanization of Mormon Identity. And many of us sort of know about the Mormon story in Nigeria because it was, I just remember when I was many years ago hearing about the group of people there that had written to the church and said, we've been reading your brochures and things, and this sounds just like the thing for us. And I thought, how strange. <laughs> Having been a missionary myself and knocked on many doors that got slammed in my face, I thought that was just great. And so we kind of know that story, but many of us don't know much about uh, Nigerian Mormonism today. And Russell has spent time there in the country, done his research there, and I think we're going to be very richly blessed by hearing a little bit more about how things stand. A little more about Russell. He has the distinction of having been awarded the Mormon History Association's Best Book Award for 2014. His book was For the Cause of Righteousness, a Global History of Blacks and Mormonism, and I actually have a copy of that. It's a great book. If you don't have it, you can get it from Amazon.com, and you should do that. This is quite an honor, by the way, to have that award. The other notable winners of that have been Richard Bushman for his Rough Stone Rolling, Greg Prince for his biography of David O. McKay, so that he, Russell stands in some pretty impressive company for such a relatively young person. He's also written articles and another book about Elijah Abels. And just recently, he has been awarded the Martin Luther King Endowed Scholarship for Social Activism and Community Service at Michigan State, which is quite an honor. He's taught history and religion classes at BYU. He currently serves as his uh, ward young men's, in, in his ward young men's presidency. His pastimes include rock climbing, kayaking, and seeking out the best of the country's chicken tikka masala. So we'll have to get uh, some hints from him on where to find that. Uh, I'll turn the time over to Russell. 
Thank you, Morris. It is my pleasure to be here tonight. And uh, one award that he did not list, and I'm quite disappointed about this, is that I'm the most eligible menace to society. Uh, my, my award has, has just given me that. and um, I, I, It was my favorite award to, to get, but you know, I'll, I'll take everything I can on the CV. So the title of my presentation tonight is a, it's intentionally a, a riff. It, it's meant to play on the, the popular Book of Mormon musical that has obviously swept the Tonys and will be coming to Michigan State over the course of the next, uh, next year or so. And in this musical, for those of you who have not seen it, it's the story of two Mormon missionaries. They are very idealistic. They have hopes. They have dreams of going out and changing the world, of knocking Satan off of his perch. And they get a call. They are hoping to Florida or to all kinds of other places. No, but to Uganda. And in their eyes, Uganda is just nothing more than a conglomerate of various stereotypes about Africa, ranging from Lion King to the Lost Boys of Sudan to Nelson Mandela. And beyond that, Nelson, uh, Africa doesn't really have much by way of complexity. Eventually, they come to sing this song called We Are Africa, and you know, this is meant to be a parody of, a, you know, of Bono's musical work and you know, his efforts to fundraise from Africa and, and that kind of thing. It, it's just popping with you know, emotion and with feeling and with a real sense of their thinking that they are going to be white saviors for the African peoples. Now, one thing that we study... And one thing that we find as we look at the African Latter-day Saint experience is that really this, this idea of being Africa, it has a variety of different shades. Right? There, there is no way of being Africa. There are actually many Africas. Uh, within Nigeria alone, you have hundreds of distinct languages. You have uh, dozens of distinct ethnicities. And that's, you know, really just within one country, albeit the most populated country in the African continent. So this presentation is meant to complicate a story that many of us think that we know, a story that many of us think that we are familiar with. It's meant to show that the Nigerian Latter-day Saint experience is not just something that we can hold up on a pedestal. It's not just something that we can point to and say, see, they were able to join the church all on their own. And why can't African-American Latter-day Saints just get over it? Now, this is a picture of myself uh, in Oweri, Nigeria, uh, having just attended a, a church service there. And I entitled the slide, uh, Black Skins, White Shirts. For those who are familiar with the study of colonialism and post-colonialism, there was a famous book by Franz Fanon called Black Skins, White Masks in which he argues that African peoples have been compelled to live by Western standards for so long that they actually end up feeling a kind of internal tension and internal anxiety so powerful that only physical violence can rid them of this kind of dissonance. What's interesting, though, is in, in studying the Nigerian Latter-day Saint experience, as Morris alluded to earlier, there is a fierce independence in this tradition. An independence that cuts its own path away and apart from the story of institutional Mormonism. So as I embark on this story, I want to emphasize to you in the language of a famous Igbo proverb, 
Uchakamana Beke, that lies are best told in English. <laughs> to tell this story, we're going to tell actually three Mormon stories. You're going to recognize some of them. You're going to find some of them to be new. And in most cases, you'll find them to be both. And they're the stories of Anthony Obina, who is the individual uh, pictured right here. And you probably know this person, that's Sonia Johnson, who became a famous uh, feminist activist in the late 1970s. And on the far right, you have Glenn Taggart, who was an administrator at Michigan State University, a Latter-day Saint, a prominent figure in helping to create modern, the, the modern Nigerian educational system. First, I want to give you a sense of what it looks like on the ground, just walking the streets of Oweri, Nigeria. Because we have certain images in our mind of what Africa ought to look like. We have certain expectations of what Africa is, especially African religiosity. And let me tell you that just walking the streets of Oweri, Nigeria, communicates to anybody that the air is popping with religious energy. Everywhere you go, you will see, you will feel, you will hear religion. For example, the picture you see is a flyer like many others that you see on the streets of Nigeria. And it is of a man who calls himself Prophet Living Soul. You know, he invites you to his birthday party. And typically these kinds of religious events, they aren't just birthday parties, but they're often sold as being a night of power and glory, or a night of prophecy, or a night of redemption. Religiosity is meant to be a deeply powerful uh, experience that is to be witnessed, that is to be seen, and that is to be heard. It is an outward expression, far more than anything that we are accustomed to within the American Latter-day Saint experience, in which we put on our shirts and ties, as do uh, many there as well, mind you. But we put on our shirts and ties, we sit in our chapels, and we listen. Religi religiosity is far more interactive than that, and it is far more well-advertised. Now compare and contrast that with the Oweri Stake Center. Now, you're only seeing the Stake Center here, but understand that this is situated in a community that makes this look like the Taj Mahal. Only feet away, you're going to see garbage, you're going to see unpaved roads, you're going to see crushing poverty. Meanwhile, you have men wearing shirts and ties, women wearing dresses, not wearing traditional Igbo attire. And then, of course, you have the nice basketball court right here. <laughs> Politics in a wary. Hopefully you can all read that, but if you cannot... Uh, this is of the current governor. He was elected on this campaign. Thank you. Uh, this is for Governor Roaches. Thank you, Lord, for giving Emo State Roaches again. When the righteous is on the throne, the people rejoice. And I can tell you that this is not an unusual political advertisement. Politicians freely tout their divine mandates. And they freely sell themselves as the person who is going to correct the moral evils that have crept into, in this case, the society of emo state. So as we talk about the Nigerian Latter-day Saint experience, we need to understand that these individuals who are seeking out Mormonism, they were not just falling out of the air. 
There was a context. They were influenced by a variety of forces, by a variety of figures, and by a variety of ideologies. So what was it about Mormonism that could be so appealing to a man such as Anthony Obina? And his name, by the way, literally means uh, dear to the heart of the father. You know, his, uh, his middle name is Uzodima, which means the way is good. That's another interesting thing about Igbo religiosity, is it is embedded in their very names. It is not at all unusual to meet somebody whose last name is literally God. You could, in English, it would be translated, if you're calling, talking, about, talking to them in church, as Brother God. So, what made Mormonism such a compelling system of thinking for a man like Anthony Obina? After all, Mormonism was far removed from the Nigerian context. It is based on the visionary experiences of a country boy in upstate New York. What on earth could a man like Anthony Obina ever hope to have in common with Joseph Smith? And the answer for that is Joseph Smith was a country boy who experienced visions in upstate New York. Anthony Obina came from the town of Mbise, which was not far from where I lived. He was raised in an ardently anti-colonial environment. He said that everybody wanted to keep their distance from Western education. They did not want to appear before white people. They had very little good to say about the British colonial government. So Anthony Obina was informed by this worldview. His father, however, was a judge. So to some extent, he was complicit in the world of the colonial government. Moreover, Anthony Obina, even though he experienced Christianity by attending a Catholic school, he also experienced indigenous Igbo religion just by walking the streets. And indigenous Igbo religiosity is of the kind where it's a very humbling experience because you recognize that even if you keep one god, such as Ugo, pleased, you could easily be killed by another god. You, rec you recognize that there is a, a, a number of forces at play in your life and that sometimes one force wins out over the other. Anthony Obina, he had a number of obstacles to overcome in order to see the world of Mormonism. He called his parents idol worshippers, and yet he was exposed to biblical readings on a regular basis. Iba religiosity is more than willing to give and take, to negotiate, to work with a variety of influences without ever feeling hypocritical about it. And as the time of the colonial government came to an end in 1960. Obina came to see the era of his childhood as being the era of primitive times, as being an era in which they were unenlightened. The post-colonial era for Obina offered a world of hope. There was an Igbo proverb, Ichedime, tomorrow is pregnant. And this is the kind of thinking that played into Anthony Obina as he transitioned from the colonial world of his childhood and the religious experiences of his childhood to the world following the end of the British colonial regime. So one day, Anthony Obina is going to sleep. And in his sleep, 
he has a dream, and, and, and this is a typical experience for many Igbo converts. In this dream, he sees a man, and the man leads him into a beautiful white building. And once inside the building, it becomes clear that this man is no ordinary man, but Christ crucified. And he gives him a tour of the building, talking about all the people inside and how all they do, day and night, is pray. Obina wakes up. The next day, he has the same dream again, and then again, and then again. For the next several weeks, this dream comes to him. It, it, it impresses itself on his very soul to the extent that he could not let it go. He had no idea what it meant. He didn't know what this building was. He just knew that it was endorsed by Christ crucified. So 1967 rolls around and Nigeria is torn into three pieces. After all, it had been something of a colonial imagination anyway. You have in the west a community of the, the Yoruba population. In the east, you have the Igbo population. And in the north, you have the Hausa population. And as I indicated earlier, even that is a simplification. The Igbo community of the east, they tried to form their own republic. They called it the Republic of Biafra. And Anthony Obina lived in this republic. And during the, the, the raging of the war, he was locked down inside a bunker, and there happened to be a Reader's Digest laying around. Well, you don't have anything else to do, so you read the Reader's Digest. And he comes across an article entitled March of the Mormons. In this article, there's a picture of a beautiful building. And he sees it, and he says, I've seen that building before. He identified it as the Salt Lake Temple. So immediately, Obina knew that whoever these Mormons were, they resonated with his spiritual experience. And he had an obligation to seek them out. Obviously, he had a hard time doing so over the course of the Nigeria-Biafran War. But in 1971, he acquired contact information for the LDS Church in Salt Lake City and sent them a letter begging them for literature. The letter made its way to a man named Lamar Stevenson Williams. Now, Lamar Williams, he responded rather coldly. He said, I'm sorry, we do not have the authority to establish the church in Nigeria right now. Now, for those of us who are even somewhat familiar with the story of the rise of Mormonism in Africa, that is a rather predictable response. But it's only predictable if read outside the context and experiences of Lamar Williams. So now we're going to talk about who Lamar Williams was and why his rather brusque dismissal was so significant. In 1960, President David O. McKay and his First Presidency sent a letter to President Glenn Fisher of the South African Mission. And in this letter, they said, President Fisher, we have received floods of correspondence from a number of Nigerians begging for us to come and to send missionaries and to send materials. Now notice, this is before Anthony Obina had had his visionary experience. So Brother Fisher, could you please explore the prospects for missionary efforts in Nigeria on your way back from South Africa? Glenn Fisher does so. Uh, his experience in Nigeria was 
something of a logistical nightmare. It was, after all, they, they were in the process, process of decolonizing. Add to that, there was a, a major refugee crisis in, in the Congo, so you have a, a flood of refugees coming to Nigeria as well. And the airport was just overwhelmed with people. But, of course, in Glenn Fisher's mind, the problems weren't really with the refugees or with the overwhelming amounts of people. The problem was with incompetent Nigerians. And thank heavens, he said, we have some British to keep the fort down. And this is what he was saying even years after the fact. But he finally comes in contact with some of these Nigerians who are begging to become part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And like a snap, he was converted. He met them, and he said in their eyes, in their demeanor, in everything about their religiosity, I believe that they're sincere. See, President McKay had warned President Fisher they might be looking for money. They're looking to associate with the wealthy patronage of an American church. So please, approach carefully. Fisher came away believing that not only were they not in it for the money, but that their religious convictions demanded further attention. Now, the following year, October of 1961, McKay commissions Lamar Stevenson Williams and a young 19-year-old Pat Boone-loving missionary, Marvin Jones, to go to Nigeria and follow up on the work of President Fisher. So 1961... Jones and, and Williams arrive in Nigeria. And as with Fisher, they were initially quite skeptical. They both kept writing their journals, I think they're in it for the money. They keep asking for cars. <laughs> they keep asking for contributions. They're in it for the money. Meanwhile, poor Elder Jones, he was just frightened by all the physical deformities that he saw. He, he said, I've never seen so many club feet. I've never seen so many missing arms. I've never seen so much filth. How can these people live like this? Mind you, he's from Bountiful, Utah, so he was coming from a little bit of a different context. But then, one day, a man approaches Marvin Jones and says, Elder Jones, we Nigerians, we need to go to America and teach you Christianity. And you know, that's kind of turning the conventional colonial logic on its head given the long history of uh, missionary <laughs> efforts in Nigeria. And this question rattled Jones. Jones confided in his journal. I think that maybe he's right. Meanwhile, Lamar Williams, he is trying to present a rather difficult truth to these sincere Nigerian converts, saying, so we appreciate how committed you are to the gospel. We appreciate that you've come into contact with you know, this, these various literatures from American expatriates and from you know, colonial officials or however you came across, in contact with it. But we need to tell you something. You'll never be able to run the church because you're of African descent. Now, the narrative typically goes that Nigerians were just patient, that they just waited. But when Elder Williams presented this to the earliest of the Nigerian proselytes, their response wasn't so patient. They said, well, one, why can't we have a prophet in Africa? Why can't we have our own brand of Mormonism? And frankly, if you don't want us in your church, we'll be Mormon anyway, because we believe in this gospel. And this is a theme that you see running throughout the Nigerian Latter-day Saint experience, is 
a fierce independence and commitment to being a Mormon regardless of what the white folks say. So over the course of the next two weeks, Jones and Williams continue to have a variety of conversations with various Nigerians, presenting to them this American gospel and continually finding that in spite of their skepticism, they are consistently converted to a new kind of Mormonism. So I tell people that American missionaries didn't convert Nigerians to Mormonism. Nigerians converted Americans to the next stage of Mormonism. So convinced was Williams that he wrote in his journal, I do not think we can keep the priesthood from these people anymore. So in 1971, when he responds to Anthony Obina, his curt dismissal was covering up a long history where he knew that the time of the priesthood ban, the days were numbered. And he had known that for a long, long time. So with that, let's move on to the next figure, Glenn Taggart. Now, Glenn Taggart, he was a, a good country boy from Logan, Utah. He had attended Utah State University, studying rural sociology, not unlike what Lori Nelson had studied. And uh, for those of you who are familiar with Lori Nelson, he was uh, one of the first academics to come out in the open with a critique of Mormonism's uh, you know, priest, uh, priesthood and temple restrictions on people of African descent. Glenn Taggart received his PhD at University of Wisconsin-Madison, which was a, a hub for rural sociology of the time. And eventually he became the first dean of international programs at Michigan State University in the mid-1950s. Now at that time, being dean of international programs basically meant, to some extent, how are you going to help the federal government promote anti-communist policies in the developing world? See, sometimes we think of the Cold War as being a conflict over you know, tanks and missiles and nuclear weapons. But there was a strong undercurrent thinking that, okay, we, we don't just fight communism with weaponry, we also fight it with rice. <coughs> we also fight it with good old-fashioned American know-how, you know, these farm boys who, who know how to raise things out of nothing, you know, who, who went to the, the wilderness of Utah and were able to turn it into a, a blossoming rose. So Glenn Taggart, being the good Latter-day Saint that he was, brought this worldview to the table. And at the same time that he was serving as the Dean of International Programs at Michigan State University, there was a prominent political figure from eastern Nigeria that approached Michigan State University about trying something revolutionary. His name was Azikiwe. Azikiwe approaches Glenn Taggart and says, so, Mr. Taggart, you attended Utah State University. You are the Dean of International Programs at Michigan State University. And your school is a school committed not just to teaching liberal arts, but it's committed to teaching agriculture. It's committed to teaching the people. It's not just meant for the elite. It's meant for the ordinary folks, too. And Taggart says, well, yes, of course. He said, I want you to do the same thing in, in Nigeria. So I want you to come to Nigeria and start up a land-grant institution committed to teaching ordinary folks about agriculture, about technology, about engineering, 
forget this liberal arts stuff. I mean, there was a university up in Ibadan, and you know, it was it wasn't actually a Nigerian university. It was the University of London, which happened to be in Nigeria. And you know, Azikiwe he owned a large stretch of land in the little town of Nsoka. And he said, Mr. Taggart, I want you to build this university on this land, and here is a bag of money to do it. So Taggart, John Hanna, the president of, uh, of Michigan State University, and Azikiwe, along with a number of other of these kind of agricultural cold warriors, joined forces and created the first indigenous university in Nigeria, the University of Nigeria at Nsoka. Now, why is Glenn Taggart significant in the history of Mormonism? After all, I, I have looked at his papers extensively, and all of them are at Michigan State University. I've read memo after memo after memo, and he doesn't mention his Mormonism once. He comes across as a very capable, sound, and reasonable administrator. So, what does he have to do with Mormonism and African identity? Glenn Taggart had a son named Stephen. Now, for those of you who have studied Mormonism's race history, Stephen Taggart should ring a bell. He wrote the very first book in the history of Mormon scholarship addressing the history of the priesthood ban in Mormonism. Now, his thesis was essentially that it was a byproduct of the Missouri era. Uh, it was Joseph Smith trying to you know, get the mobs off his back for you know, the Latter-day Saints you know, being anti-slavery. Uh, and that ultimately it should be left behind. That it was just, you know, it, it was just this quirk that had somehow endured into 20th century thought and it served no place in 1960s and 1970s Mormonism. Stephen Taggart ended up dying an untimely death. He, he had Hodgkin's disease and uh, ended up dying before the, the book could actually be published. So his wife Pamela published it posthumously, saying that this was his life's work to undo this long-standing uh, th this long-standing structure of reasoning that had become an albatross around this, it, the church that he loved, it, its neck. Right? It, it was just a burden that it could no longer bear and should no longer bear. So we see here that even though Glenn Taggart did not really talk about Mormonism, did not talk about his faith and his administration of the University of Nigeria at Nsoka. He passed on a message to his son. And as you can see, and we have documentation to back this, Glenn Taggart interacted with Nigerians on terms of parity. Indigenous voices, and we have their writings, spoke of Glenn Taggart as being a fabulous supporter of Nigerian education. And at no time do we have any evidence that they felt he was condescending in any way. When he left his post at the University of Nigeria in 1966, they celebrated his work and wished him a fond farewell. So the Taggart family shows us that Nigeria plays a central role in the creating of the Mormon racial narrative. Now finally we have the story of Sonia Johnson. Now, what on earth could Sonia Johnson have to do with Nigeria? As it happens, Nigeria is what made Sonia Johnson into who she was. 
So for those of you who have read Housewife to Heretic, you have some sense for the kind of life that she lived during the 1960s. She saw herself as essentially a traditional Mormon housewife. Now, all of her letters are at the University of Utah. They are ready for everyone to see, and they are weekly. They're extensive. And I can attest that in many ways, she bears all of the signals of what we tend to attribute to you know, a traditional gender role within Mormonism. And not only that, but that she ascribed to many of the traditional doctrines of Mormonism. She spoke freely of how she looked forward to the day that she might be returning to Jackson County. And she spoke freely of the day that the second coming would come and, and all the troubles of this world would be wrapped up. And when Joseph Fielding Smith was named to be prophet, she said, oh my, he's, he's a little bit doctrinaire, but maybe I'm not doctrinaire enough. She liked to read dialogue. That was her, that was her heresy. <laughs> and above all, she liked black people, which distinguished her quite strongly from the rest of her family. Uh, and she would make that clear in her correspondence, saying, you all, uh, you all don't really like black people, so you may not want to come to this event. Right? It, it was kind of an open secret. Well, in 1966, her and her husband were called upon to go to Nigeria on a USAID mission to serve as an analyst for the uh, various State Department programs that were taking place in post-colonial Nigeria. So while she's living in Lagos, you know, she's having home evening, and she's reading her scriptures, and she's doing the kinds of things that Mormons tend to do in Bountiful or Salt Lake or Provo or California or, or wherever they are. And Sonia Johnson, one day, it was in March of 1966, she said, it just dawned on me. I've been interacting with all these Nigerians, and I found them to be beautiful people, wonderful people, moral people. Yeah, there are some scoundrels, but there are white scoundrels too. And I realized, at this very moment, that the race issue is going to be the defining issue of our generation. And that somebody is going to need to deal with it. I don't know if it'll be David O. McKay. I don't, know who it'll, I don't know who it will be, but somebody needs to receive a revelation on this. And this is the first evidence that you see in her correspondence of a fundamental break from what we consider to be orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Understanding that there is a, this system is flawed and it's unsustainable. Now, she left that behind. You know, she went back to the States and then came back to Nigeria again. And then over the course of the 1970s, she began to have some marital problems. She began to feel increasingly distant from her husband. And then by the end of the decade, uh, she had become a full-on supporter of the Equal Rights Amendment. Even while she, she tried to hold on to her faith over the, like from 1976 and 1977, but by 1979, she had come to see her belief in feminism as being fundamentally opposed to the institutional Latter-day Saint Church. And she was excommunicated shortly thereafter. But understand that the making of Sonia Johnson, that story cannot be told unless we talk about the Sonia Johnson that Nigeria made. So let's have some closing thoughts. First of all, if you're thinking about a backdrop against which modern Mormon conflicts of various kinds would play itself out, 
I feel fairly confident that Nigeria would not come to mind. But as we can see, all of the major issues of the latter half of the 20th century can be seen in full technicolor on the streets of Oweri and against the scenery of Lagos. You have Anthony Obina, as well as the earlier converts, who will indicate the direction that the church is going in Africa. Now Nigeria has more Latter-day Saints than any other country, 120,000 strong. Moreover, Anthony Obina and the other Latter-day Saints show the fiercely independent tradition that exists in Nigerian Mormonism. And it was a tradition they paid mightily for. In 1960, when they were vying to have church leaders come to Nigeria, they could barely even type out the correspondence because their typewriter was broken, and they were trying to raise funds to buy a new typewriter. So you see in Anthony Obina and others the germs of a global church, of a global church that is going to need to adapt in the 21st century. And you know, as uh, African-American theologian J. Cameron Carter has said, we do indeed new, need a new theological imagination for the 21st century. You see in Glenn Taggart, kind of the, the old school, build it from the ground mentality. A mentality that all the same was ready to undergo revision when faced with new information. And it was a change of mind and a change of soul that was so strong that it even passed on to the next generation in the person of Stephen Taggart. And even if one wants to reject Stephen Taggart's thesis out of hand, and I don't think one should, I mean, there, are, uh, there is a, a large part of truth in that thesis. It doesn't cover the whole story. But even if one wants to reject that out of hand, one cannot dismiss his work and his influence on recreating the Mormon racial narrative. To at the very least say that the priesthood ban is something that belonged in the 19th century, not in the 20th century. You see in Lamar Williams a similar disposition that when faced with experiences that contradict what he thinks and what he sees and what he feels, he is willing to revise. And then finally, in Sonia Johnson, you see how Nigeria played a fundamental role in reshifting how she saw orthodoxy in acknowledging that perhaps the way I've assumed things to be true are not true when you're staring something opposite in the face on the streets of Lagos. So Nigeria, I hope to argue before you today, is just more, it's more than just another African country, especially for Mormons. And it's more than a token gesture to racial diversity. You know, we, we can't merely say, well, you know, look at the Nigerians. <laughs> they managed to be Mormon, and yet here you have, you know, these African Americans are complaining. No, that, that, should, that, that is a mythology that the documentary record more than disproves. In fact, in October of 1978, Anthony Obina, <coughs> excuse me, it was September of 1978, Anthony Obina sends a letter to Spencer W. Kimball himself, and he says, your silence to me and my community is an embarrassment. Christ commanded God's church to go into all of the world. And 
we are going to be Latter-day Saints, whether you like it or not. So the Nigerian experience reveals to us, and especially Anthony Obina, that one can be fiercely loyal, even as one is fiercely independent. Thank you. Well, we've got some time for questioning, and that's great. And since I'm kind of in charge here, I'm going to get to ask the first question, which would be, can you give us a very brief discussion of what happens between Anthony Obina and the church today? Does he play a role, a major role, in the formation of the Mormon church in Nigeria? And did he play a leading pastoral role? Was he a bishop, stake president, that kind of thing? Or were there other people that stepped into those roles? Great question. Thank you. So in um, missionary, uh, official church missionaries, and, and by official I mean with the intent of having you know, a proselytizing mission, came to Nigeria in fall of 1978. And it was in the person of Rendell and Rachel Maybe, as well as, as well as another couple. Uh, whose names are slipping my mind for, for some strange reason. Oh, Edwin and Jane of Cannon. And J- Jane of Cannon had once been in the, relief, in the General Relief Society presidency, as, as it happens. And, you know, they gushed about meeting Anthony Obina. And they, they devoted a, a full portion of their journal to that moment where you know, they had to, you know, ask a guy with one arm, hey, where, where, where do we go to find Anthony Obina? And the guy with one arm says, oh, you go down that way, right? It, it, it had the, making, you know, the, the makings of, uh, of a movie in some ways. And they even published those portions of their journal in a popular Utah periodical uh, called This People. It was rather short-lived, but um, it, it, it gushed about how powerful of a personality that Anthony Obina was. He was the first person baptized on the Nigerian mission, and he ended up becoming a branch president as well. Now, you asked about today. He is now deceased, and based on oral history research... And based on my own interactions, I can say that Obina has been marginalized from the narrative. That there is actually, there is a real break between the Obina family as well and the mainstream institutional church. Because for all of Obina's scrappiness, right, for all of his commitment to building the church, he never really, you know, he never really left behind that willingness to buck the system. So as the institutional church grew within Nigeria, it wasn't that he was devalued. Right? You can marginalize somebody even as you praise somebody. You just need to depict their accomplishments as something that belonged in days past. So as you saw in the picture of Anthony Obina and, his, uh, you know, and you know, the children there, the picture is interesting because one of the children is holding an enzyme and you can see a picture of Joseph Fielding Smith on it. I mean, and that's why I love that picture so much. But whereas in that picture you see this hodgepodge grouping of, you know, of, of motley followers, today you see the picture of white shirts and ties. So generally speaking, Latter-day Saints tend to say, okay, well, that was good then, that was great, but now is the time to you know, adhere, adhere to the standards of the institutional church. Of the 120,000, about how many have a sense of allegiance to Salt Lake? How cohesive is the group? I, I can't speak to the entirety of the population because I've only had my interactions uh, in a wary. Wild guess. Right. I would say, based on my experience, there is a strong sense of, of allegiance and institutionality. I mean, Sunday school, they freely used manuals. 
they readily read from the manuals. Uh, it, it, during one of the lessons, uh, an instructor talked about how you know there needs to be one church, there needs to be a central authority, and we value that. And no one pushed back, at least not openly. Um, so I- in my experience, uh, you could find yourself, you know, the, it could fit well within any kind of Utah church setting, except the fact that they were Nigerians. No, yes. I was just going to add that I, I know a bishop and a state president's council from Central Bar in Nigeria. There's about 24 stakes there now. And there is a, I'm not sure what percentage, you know, because I'm not sure you're here, but the church is a church over there, yeah. the way it's running now. Right. Yes. Is there a unique musical experience in the African church? <laughs> You know, when the missionaries first went, there was. They used drums, they danced, you know, they incorporated uh, several aspects of their traditional worship. But today, um, if they have a piano, they play it, or they might, more likely, they're just playing a cheap keyboard. Uh, but they sing Latter-day Saint hymns in the same way that we would sing, uh, uh, sing them. As Dale said, the church is the church there. Is, it, is there, a, in most of the African churches, you see an evangelical... Pentecostal type of uh, atmosphere in church is ours as sedate as it is here. In my experience, it is. In my experience, it is. Um, How does that resonate uh, with the people outside the church? You know, when I told people I was a Mormon, they tended to be rather forgiving, but one gentleman, he laughed. He said, oh, you know in our country that's a cult, right? It's like, well, that's not news. Not a new idea there. But uh, in, in general, Mormonism is considered to be, you know, a lot of the same terms that evangelical Christians consider Mormonism to be here. You know, cultish, cliquish, uh, you know, after all, you've got all these people dressed in white shirts and ties, and, you know, they're sitting there quietly listening to someone speak, uh, even though it's, you know, not unlike what you would see with the Presbyterian, so I'm not sure why they would draw that distinction. Um, as far as the nature of the preaching, uh, in my experience, the preaching tended to be quite practical. Right, they would give full-on sermons about financial preparedness, right, or financial self-sustenance. So it has a certain element of the prosperity gospel, I would say, for those of you who are familiar with that. Yes? I wonder why they're playing a cheap keyboard. Doesn't the church support their uh, environment like the church supports it in the United States? That, I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, part of it could be the expense of the piano, I actually did not ask about that, and I don't know why they didn't have a nice piano, um, but I'm inclined to think that it could be because it's just hard to access pianos. I saw very few pianos in any of my experiences there, anywhere. Yeah, it's pretty humid too, so it would be very hard to keep them in tune. Yes? Uh, a Jewish friend of mine tells me there's a group in Uganda that originally converted to Christianity, and then they read the Old Testament with the polygamy and bride price, and they decided they liked that better, so they're now Orthodox Jews. Was there any of this in Obina's you know, interest, or was it all this kind of charismatic experience of the dream? Was he attracted to particular doctrines? Or? Right. Um, you know, we, we do know that he read Joseph Smith's you know, first vision experience, so that certainly appealed to him. Uh, you know, we have... Uh, a copy of his Book of Mormon that he marked up. And we know, we know that all the talk about healing, that really appealed to him as well. Uh, he came from a polygamous family. You know, his father had three wives, but we have no evidence that he really sought out polygamy for himself. That being said, though, let's you know, maybe step away from Obina and talk about other like Igbo Latter-day Saints. 
polygamy was a real issue. You had a number of Igbo Latter-day Saints who had several wives, and uh, you know, Lamar Williams actually made notes of this, like, what are we to do about this? Because many of these men, I mean, you know, in the United States, they would be excommunicated for this. And at first, there was an effort at being somewhat, uh, you know, having an adaptive or, or pragmatic approach. But by 1979, uh, the church had basically decided, if, you know, if you're a polygamist, you can't join. And we have that coming down from Carlos Acey. Yes. Well, you know, for me as a as a Nigerian, one thing that, that uh, makes uh, uh, Mormonism uh, so unique in Africa or what in Nigeria I can say is uh, the structure that comes uh, with it. You know, because in the uh, conventional uh, uh, denominations, you have a reverend, you have mm-hmm. a pastor that survive on the uh, income that comes in. And here you are, new, we don't take any, uh, nobody gets paid, and this is how uh, everybody can get up every Sunday and speak. You know, and that's very unique, and family uh, unity, and uh, everything that the church uh, preaches, people tend to draw, uh, for me, that's what uh, brought me uh, to the church, because that's how I grew up, I grew up in a, in a compound with a family, Mm. And to tell me that, uh, wow, somebody comes to visit you on uh, once a month on teaching. That's awesome. You know, and that's what you don't see in uh, the common uh, churches. Once uh, you leave church, you forget about everything that has been taught. But being a member of the church, you leave it at 24-7. Right. And I, I attended a Catholic church service on a couple of occasions, and I, I'm not saying this in any way to diminish their spiritual experience because I see it as valid, but there is a real distinction there, right? Where, you know, whereas in Latter-day Saint church service, you know, it's the block schedule just like it is here. Uh, whereas in the Catholic service, you do have the preacher and it's, it ends up being a mixture of singing, of preaching, and then on more than one occasion, you'll call for people to come up and, you know, put money in the, in the collection plate and then you go back and you do some more singing and it, it ends up being, feeling a lot like a, a charismatic experience. And it's the, the contrast between a Latter-day Saint church service and that service, it's pretty stark in my experience as well. Yes? How are the women doing? I've read things that because of the status of women in Africa that they're having a hard time rising to leadership within the church and to teaching and running primary. Is, is that true with women? Uh, you know, based on my personal interactions, and, um, you know, I, and that's why I want to qualify by my personal interactions, uh, there weren't any difficulties in the war that, war that I saw. You know, there, uh, the bishop's wife addressed the congregation the week, week that I was there, and her address was actually on financial preparedness. It was on making budgets. It was on managing money. Um, so by all, all indications in that ward, it, things looked pretty good, but I acknowledge I'm a male, so there are certain things that I, that I might have a blind spot to. Uh, moreover, there was a convert to uh, the church in the 1980s, Florence Chukura, uh, and... You know, she saw in the church you know, a theology that enabled um, uh, like social mobility, that promoted social mobility. In fact, there's a, there's a great uh, creation myth within uh, Igbo culture where it talks about this, you know, God having a conversation with man. And God, you know, and the man is having a hard time with the soil. He says, and God, this, this, soil, this, this soil, it's, it's too swampy. I, I can't do anything with it. And what does God say? He says, well, go get a blacksmith to dry it out. And 
you know, to us, to to the world that we're used to, that, that seems odd, but it, it makes sense within the context of the creation myth. And the point of that is that we are involved in the act of creation and that we're, we're intimate partners with God in creating things. And I think that is another element that... That would draw uh, that would draw Ebo in particular to the Latter Day Saint tradition, and it fits well within you know this woman's experience as well, where she, you know where she emphasizes you know we need to create our own financial realities, and this theology will enable us to you know to reach the next level of, of, of civilization, for lack of a better word. Yes, uh, I was uh, intrigued and interested in what you had to say about uh, the. Uh influence um, that uh, Sonia Johnson's experience had on her mm-hmm. and Glenn Taggart's experience and his sons. Um, I think you make a good case for that, but I don't think there's much of a case that the influence of either the Taggarts or Sonia Johnson was uh, significant in the impact through them on the institutional church. Uh, certainly Glenn Taggart or rather not Glenn but the son Steve uh, uh, Steve Taggart's uh, book I thought was was pretty well uh, the basic thesis was pretty well undermined by by Lester Bush Lester Bush's Mm -hmm. uh, paper and you you can certainly see the direct influence of Lester Bush's work on on the changing policy of the church but not young Taggart maybe because he just died prematurely but he did, I think, uh, embrace a, a theory that would, has not survived and would not survive uh, scholarly research. Right. All right, so two points with that. I'll, I'll address your first point about uh, Sonny Johnson and Glenn Taggart, and then the second point about Taggart's uh, thesis specifically. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the argument that I make about Sonny Johnson and, um, and Glenn Taggart, and also Lamar Williams as well, is, is less that they had direct impact on, like, you know, on the decision makers, right? It wasn't like, you know, President McKay or, you know, President Kimball called Sonia Johnson and said, hey, Sonia, so tell me about your experiences in Nigeria, right? Um, what I use them as is I use them as case studies of the Latter-day Saint community writ large. And we could talk about other examples as well. I wrote an article called Sonia's Awakening for the Journal of Mormon History that was premised on this. We could talk about John Goddard, who was a famous... Uh, Latter-day Saint explorer of Africa, and he, you know, became a rather open uh, proponent of knowledge about Africa within the Latter-day Saint community. He was speaking and donating his his um, his uh, the money that was earned from his speaking events to the missionary fund, to the building fund. So my point is that in order for the for Latter-day Saint leadership to make the decisions that they did, you first need to have a community that is already prepared to receive those decisions. So Sonia Johnson, Glenn Taggart, Lamar Williams, they represent what's happening within the Latter-day Saint community over the course of the 1960s and 1970s. And from there, then-President Kimball could draw upon Lester Bush and make the decisions that he did. Right? So we're, we're talking about what's in the air rather than the direct uh, decision-making process. Now, as far as Stephen Taggart's work, the reason I... I give him a little bit of credit. So again, his argument was that the priesthood ban was rooted in you know, the persecutions that the Latter-day Saints were facing in 1830s Missouri. Now, the reality is that Joseph Smith did not implement the priesthood ban. Okay? Full stop. 
That, that is not up for debate. He authorized the ordination of Elijah Abels. Um, he certainly supported the ordination of Walker Lewis. We have several African-American Latter-day Saints who were ordained during his prophetic tenure. But what we do see during Missouri, we don't see the origins of the priesthood ban, but we do see the origins of the Latter-day Saint community having to distance itself from the African-American community. For example, uh, when the Latter-day Saints were kicked out of Jackson County. One of the major reasons for that was because W.W. W. Phelps had published an editorial, and for those of you who've read this, this is very old hat, uh, called Free People of Color, in which he invited African-Americans to move to Missouri and essentially join with the Latter-day Saints. This outraged the, the community in Jackson County, among other things, and they kicked them out. And we see in newspapers of the time that the Latter-day Saints were actually being called Black Mormons for their willingness to be so supportive of the African-American community. And jumping forward a few years, 1836, uh, Governor Daniel Dunklin sends a letter to W.W. Phelps and says, you know, Mr. Phelps, if you want to prove that you are not abolitionists and you know people who want to stop slavery immediately and that was a really bad thing you do not want to be an abolitionist right it was akin to being called a communist in the 1950s that was how bad it was if you want to prove that you're not an abolitionist the burden is on you you need to prove yourself innocent they don't need to prove you guilty and in this republic vox populi vox dei the voice of the people is the voice of god and it's not long, it was around that same time that Joseph Smith came out with his editorial saying that slavery was ordained of God, that we have much to fear in the African American community, and that they are predators and threats to our, you know, white women's virtue and the same kinds of things that other people were saying. So I credit Taggart to the extent that he saw that the Latter-day Saints needed to distance themselves from the African American community. But as an explanation for the origins of the priesthood ban per se, I, I reject Taggart's thesis on that front. That was a very long-winded answer to a very short question, so my apologies. Uh, I've always heard that uh, the influence in Brazil had a major impact yeah. on you. Absolutely. Did you in there at all? Uh, um, with this specifically, less so. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there is a, there's a loose one, and that is in the person of James E. Faust. So, you know, James E. Faust, he had served a, a mission in Brazil as a young man. And given the time in which he was serving his mission, he was probably directed to only preach to the German population because Germans were known for not intermarrying with peoples of African descent. So during his missionary efforts, uh, we have reason to believe that that is when Faust found, came to say, hey, listen, peoples of African descent are really, they're good people and they deserve, you know, they deserve to be treated equally. And, and compared to the United States... Peoples of African descent were doing much better in 1930s Brazil than they were in the U.S. So Faust comes back to the United States. You know, he gets his law degree, and he becomes a prominent civil rights attorney in, in, in Utah, working under the Kennedy administration. He was president of the, America, of the, excuse me, the Utah State Bar Association. And uh, in fact, uh, when, when one uh, dissenter named John Fitzpatrick uh, approaches James E. Faust, excuse me, Faust approaches him and saying... Uh, you know, Brother Fitzpatrick, you, you know, you have all these issues with civil rights and with racial equality, and I sympathize with you. I support you in that. Uh, but then Faust encouraged him to say, listen, you need to pay your tithing, you need to attend the church. If you can do these things, then they'll listen. And I don't think it's a coincidence 
that following the lifting of the priesthood ban, James E. Faust was one of the very first top-level church leaders to visit the Nigerian saints. And we have some great videos of him playing around with a coconut in, in Nigeria. You can go look, him at, look at them in the church history library. Yes? I was wondering, you talked about um, Obina's family uh, being polygamous, and I, I thought they were Catholic. Is there, are they Muslim? Or why would there be... No, no. Um, in indigenous Igbo believe in polygamy. And remember, the Christian tradition within many African countries, they call them African independent churches or African initiated churches. So it's not at all unusual to see a Christian practicing polygamy because they've modeled Christianity after their own thinking, right? And, and again, I want to emphasize that his father was an immensely pragmatic man, right? We can call him Catholic, but we can also call him indigenous. Uh, there are, at least at this time in, uh, in Nigerian history, you don't see a lot of hardline orthodoxy. Yes. Well, my dad was my, uh, had uh, three wives, okay? But, uh, and I grew up as a Baptist. And the way it goes is, as long as uh, you are not a deacon, you are not a pastor, a reverend, you can have uh, as many wives as you, you know, if you don't, if you don't hold any... Uh, a position in the church, you can have uh, many wives, you know, as you want. But once uh, you become a deacon, you cannot. And uh, I think it's because of uh, economic uh, reasons. Nowadays, things are very difficult. Everything is expensive, so people don't tend to uh, marry that many wives anymore. So the, the women do the farming in Africa, and if you wanted to have a lot of produce, uh, you needed a lot of wives. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and kids. Right. Yes, Karen. I just love how you um, tied um, Taggart and Sonia into it because when they, uh, having their own experience, not necessarily from the church, but um, even when, you know, going to do the agriculture, they were realizing they were staring into a big problem because they were starting to love people that in the United States, it was full of tension. Mm -hmm. And so most of the people had from the United States side probably a lot of bad feelings. And Amos will tell you that was one of the key elements of him coming to the United States. When people hear his accent, they gave him a chance. Mm -hmm. Because many people have bad experiences with black Americans. Mm -hmm. And I loved how that tied in. I never realized that it was almost like we needed a third a third party to come in to help us to bring the ban of the priesthood out. Yeah. To help President Kimball. Yes, and that's a very salient point. And there's a reason for that, right? African Americans within, and now we're not just talking about the Latter day Saint experience, really talking about, um, you know, the American experience. There has been a long standing, almost nascent sense amongst white Americans, almost of ownership over African Americans in the sense that, okay, these are our blacks. Right, we know them. We get them. We know what they're about. When they say something, okay, well, yeah, that's what African Americans say, right? We we know. We get it. Whereas when a Nigerian comes over, there isn't that sense of ownership. So especially with an American, it's a little bit easier, I would argue, to see them on some kind of terms of parity than would be the case with an African American. Well, it's reciprocal too, because the African Americans have a long 
a history of grievances with American whites, mm -hmm. but the Africans don't. And so it, it makes uh, makes it, it, it does. Americans never enslaved us, right? In, in slave, like you know, the people they enslaved, yeah, they t they already took them, right? We, they didn't touch us. So that's a great point. I'm sorry, I, I still have my my I have my my mother had before World War Two. Africa has French, Africa, Italian, mm -hmm. most of the continent. So. We enslaved individuals here. We enslaved yeah, countries over exactly. there. Wait, sorry, could, could you speak up a little? We enslaved individual blacks in the Americas. The we enslaved countries in Africa. Americans. But we're talking about Americans here. I'm talking about white people. Okay, I mean, we need to draw a distinction because... Well, America's not that old. Right, right, we need to draw a distinction because... Let me, let me put it this way. Let me put it this way, if, if I may. So, W.E.B. Du Bois goes to Paris. And Du Bois says, Paris is a wonderful place. I love Paris. All black people should move to Paris. I, okay, I was talking about Africans, not the Africans I know, not the African-Americans. Okay, uh, no, I'm, I'm, getting at, I'm getting at your point. I'm getting at your point. So he says, this is, this is great, this is marvelous. Whereas Leopold Senghor from, from Senegal, he goes to Paris and he says, this is, this is horrendous, right? So my point is that when we talk about white people, there are different relationships between different white communities, right? So a British would talk to a Nigerian, and again, I'm generalizing here, would talk to a Nigerian in a different way than an American would because Americans have never had that kind of colonial relationship. A week ago, I was talking with um, a young a woman in um, Kampala, Uganda, who's in the state and women's presidency there. She has been in the state of the presidency, and she was saying... I was asking her about the tensions because I've been up at that conference at the University of Utah, but they, she was saying, well, we don't feel it here because it didn't affect us. I said, well, the church came to Uganda in 1992. What if it had come in 1892? Because they're getting their second stake on the 29th of this month. They'd have four or five temples by now if they had another hundred years. So yes, it did affect them, but they just didn't have the experience of the place. And that's a great point, too. And you end up seeing... I will say that when I asked many Igbo about the priesthood ban, like, how do you feel about that? Yeah, it was in the past. And I said, what is the most... the major issue facing the Igbo community today, you know, in, in Oweri? And they said, actually, intercaste marriage is the major issue. Caste. You see, um, within the Igbo society, there are people who are considered to be what's called osu. So those are descendants of slaves. And by having, you know, that ancestry, that makes you, in a way, a second-class citizen. Now, that is, you still have access to all the same civil rights and opportunities and economic opportunities. But when it comes to marriage, that's a whole other issue. And it's one of those things where you might sit in church and listen to your pastor or your archbishop say, you know, you really need to allow for intercaste marriage. And you'll nod your head and say, well, of course, that's the right and moral thing to do. But then if someone comes to you and says, so what do you think of your daughter marrying this Osu man? And then you'll say, okay, let's, let's not get crazy now. No, it's all fine and dandy when it's someone else's family. Exactly. Yeah, yes. <laughs> of the 120,000, uh, about what proportion is Igbo or one of the other groups? Yeah, so um, there are approximately, I would say, two and a half to three million Igbo in, in Nigeria. And yeah, the, the vast majority of the population is in the West, in Lagos. 
But there's what, 80 million people in Nigeria? What, what, what is there, 20 million? Or? 120. 120? 120 million, and only 2 or 3 million are Igbo? Yeah. That's what I know. We have a big... And, and yet you're very prominent in government and so on, or... Uh, the truth? The North. The Northern part is uh, prominent yeah. in the government because those are the Muslims. Yeah. And uh, they tend to have a lot of money. Yeah. So. And, and, dur and during the colonial regime, the Muslims were favored by the British. Yes. Um, yeah, the, the, the North was actually given uh, the lion's share of political power. And um, yeah, in fact, in some ways, uh, the British modeled their own indirect rule after how the Muslims ruled the, ruled the South. So, but so even so just the, the, the few million and almost all the 120,000 come out of that few million. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, there are... I mean, there's a fair number in the West as well. I don't want to overstate it. I, I know that in 1979, however, the, the district president, Roger T. Curtis, did say that at that time, most of the converts were Igbo. Yeah. Yes. Because that's where the temple is, right? Yeah, in Abba. Yeah. Um, one thing that we have to understand also is the majority of uh, the West, I mean, West and East, that's uh, the Christians. If you go north, yeah. those are the uh, those are the uh, those are the Muslims, and uh, a lot of uh, converts are coming uh, from uh, those uh, areas. But uh, I think uh, when I was uh, baptized in the uh, in the nineties, uh, maybe some of you know the uh, lakes uh, from uh, Cyprus. Uh, oh, they they yeah. just came back from uh, Nigeria on their mission, and they had to stop. Uh, uh, from uh, people get back getting baptized because uh, they said uh, there wasn't enough uh, priesthood uh, brethren, so they had to stop because uh, the their, their baptism uh, class was like a Sunday school class where people come and, uh, too fast. Yes, right. so so that uh, rate uh, is still there. We have to balance it with uh, the uh, yeah. the priesthood uh, brethren. Yeah, they had to stop baptizing because they, they were overwhelmed with. The people right. on the leadership. Yeah. Right. Yes. right. And, you know, speaking to the north, I mean, if you look at a, a map of church units in Nigeria, there are probably four total units in all of the north. I mean, there's one in Jos, there's one in Abuja, whereas, you know, in Oweri alone, there are probably three different chapels. Yeah, and including a state center. Yes. I was impressed with that story where um, Oberi had that dream, not just for one night, but it was over several weeks um, and it kind of reminded me of Peter you know, mm. he was sort of told that the gospel must go forth to everyone not just the Jews and the, the uh, circumcised and that and right. uh, an interesting story that he approached President Kimball and said I'm kind of like I'm going to be teaching you something um, very I see parallels here no, I Absolutely. I mean, you, you definitely don't see the sense of deference that you would see amongst American Latter-day Saints, where you, you don't talk to President Kimball like that, right? But Obina, uh, Obina, he will. Thank you, Russell. You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. 
For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit dialoguejournal.com. Thank you.